think that when you feel like you're fighting for justice, it empowers you in a different way because it's not just for you, it's for other people. And I think that makes you very powerful. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, it's Carly. This show might sound a bit different today because the skim is still working from home for the time being due to COVID-19. Today, Phaedra Ellis-Lampkins joins me on Skim from the Couch. She's the co-founder and CEO of Promise, a financial services technology company tackling criminal justice reform. Before founding Promise, Phaedra ran revenue and operations for the healthcare tech startup Honor and has built her career around creating change and improving lives. Phaedra, I'm very excited to get into this conversation. Welcome to Skimmed from the Couch. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So I have so many questions for you. And and just to level set, I was reading an article like a few months ago and you were mentioned in it and I just became obsessed with you and your story. So I I kind of cold reached out to you through a mutual mutual connection and just really excited to see this happen. So I'll start with the question I like to ask everyone, which is please skim your resume for us. I think I've spent most my life trying to figure out how to understand social change on behalf of working people, uh, people of color. And so almost all of my work is really through that lens. I worked in the labor movement for 13 years. I ended up running a labor federation and a policy and research organization that basically tried to understand how to use the power of the labor movement for social good, things like healthcare for kids and living wages. And then from there, I ran an organization called Green for All. Green for All was focused on how did you use environmental policy to also create good jobs because often people have to make a choice between really good employment that sometimes pollutes instead of it's one or the other. It's not often both, especially for low-income communities. Um, From there, I worked with the musician Prince and um, worked for him. We're uh, going to come back to that. You can't just throw that in. (laughs) (laughs) I worked for Prince for a couple of years and became really interested in how technology had a negative influence on content, especially like devaluing content. And it was mostly a negative force, I thought, for a lot of artists. And uh, I'd seen that theme in the labor movement um, as people who weren't core to the firm became marginalized in the economy. So I wanted to go learn how technology could work. And so I went to work at Honor, started running operations, ended up running revenue and operations. I recently joined the board. I love that company. And then really understood that uh, technology was fundamentally about scale and wanted to understand how did you purposely create a company that was using technology for good? And so co-founded a company with a friend that I'd worked with for about 12 years. And uh, we started Promise. Great. You know, obviously it's a very professional biography and, and fancy LinkedIn. What is something that we couldn't find on either of those things that we should know about you? It's so funny because I don't think of myself at all as fancy. So I appreciate it. <laughs> really, yeah, it's me. very impressive. <laughs> I was like, okay, I appreciate it. Um, I think something people probably is I answer the phones at every place I work because I feel like I learn so much. And so I am probably the person that you're most likely to get on a phone call early in the morning or late at night because I learn through doing. And so I really like answering the phones. I love I that. That's the first time we've ever had somebody say that. That's great. Really? Yeah. It's like, I like it. 
So what I've always struck by in, in talking to so many amazing women on this show is how much each of us are shaped by how we grew up and how that ended up informing our career choice. And so I'm curious before we we dive into why you ended up doing what you do, how do you think your childhood led you to that? My mom was a waitress when I was growing up. And so I think there's this very vivid moment in my life where I realized she wasn't bringing food to me, but she was bringing it to other people. And so it made me realize, I think, and also the importance of tips. And I was clear that a lot of our livelihood was dependent on how other people felt and treated her. And so I think that as I grew up, I was very clear that we were poor. And I was clear that people treated my mom differently than other people. And so the thing I think that I spent most of my life trying to do is to build dignity for children. So it's like, it felt different. I was lucky. I was like in all these gifted programs, but like 90% of the kids were wealthy. They all knew each other. They'd gone to school together. They had private tutors. And I knew that I was different. And I knew the experience of my mom was different. And so I just think it felt bad. And so the lens, I think for me, has always been like, how do kids not have that same experience? How do they feel dignity? How do they feel respected? Kids shouldn't have to feel that way. And so for me, it's really the the isolation of knowing that we were poor and other people weren't. I remember, you know, my mom was a single mom. And so, you know, it was just very, very different. And I just, I don't want other kids to feel that way. As you emerged as this leader in these two movements, I'm curious, what were the, the strategies that you learned early on on how to advocate for change and then actually get that change to be created? I think that I grew up in a pretty, I grew up all around a lot of trauma and violence. And I think what it did is there's a lot of science about how kids who experience trauma, how they manage crisis. And I think the first thing is that having to manage crisis as a young person made me able to manage crisis as an adult. And so when I went into the world, things that might normally throw someone for a loop didn't feel chaotic to me. Like, oh, someone canceled? Who cares? Like, that's not crisis. Also, I think the reality of having to get up and like keep... My friends and I joke, we're rowers. Like when something happens, like we got to keep rowing. It doesn't occur to us to stop because we just didn't have those options. So I'd say, I think what made me effective is I didn't stop because it quite frankly didn't occur to me you could. And then I think that I also had managed chaos. So the things that felt chaotic to other people didn't feel chaotic to me. And last is, I think that when you feel like you're fighting for justice, it empowers you in a different way because it's not just for you, it's for other people. And I think that makes you very powerful. When I think about what you've done, where you've worked, like so much of it is tied into kind of the emotional impact that you create, that you can create. and. I'm curious when you actually extract like your core competencies that have traveled with you from job to job, what are the, you know, the core skill set that that has allowed you to sort of do one thing after the other to eventually actually become CEO? I think that fundamentally I am best when I feel like I am helping avenge justice because it makes me bolder than I might be naturally. It makes me stronger. And then I have an incredible skill, which is I don't care if other people like me. I started to care a couple of years ago, but up until then, unless I loved you, I didn't really care what you thought about me. And that makes you much bolder because I think if you think that you're doing what's right and if your moral compass holds you to a certain expectation, then what someone else thinks of you doesn't matter. So like, I didn't care if other people liked me, which means that I didn't stress about how people felt. 
I think women, sometimes we aren't always given that ability to not be worried. And so because I didn't care, and especially as a black woman, it gave me incredible power because I wasn't impacted, right? By the fact that people didn't like me or that people thought that's not how I should behave or I shouldn't be as bold or, you know, whatever. So I think that probably was what made me really able, I think, to make good decisions and to be able to lead is I felt rooted when I was in the labor movement in the people we represented. So what mattered to me is did the janitors that I thought were single moms, working two jobs, living in garages, like, did they think I was doing a good job? If they thought I did, I didn't care if city council people did or mayors or governors or presidents. And I think being rooted in people and being clear about who you work on behalf of gives you incredible power. To this day, I feel like if in our work in criminal justice, if the people we serve, if the people we seek to measure our lives by the improvements in their lives, if they feel like our work is good, then, then we have accomplished what we set out to accomplish. What made you a few years ago start to care if people liked you? After I worked for Prince, people sometimes said mean things about me. And I think the hard part about working in music was I'd never worked for like a celebrity or money or things like that. And so I didn't understand the things that came with it. And I wasn't very good at like saying this is what's happening in the world or this is not. So even like when we got his master's back, he was like, you should go do a story and like be and tell like how this happened. And it, like I just had a baby. I was raising kids. Like it just wasn't my shtick. And so I think when people said untrue, mean things about me and my skill set wasn't advocating for myself or even telling a story or creating a narrative, it was hurtful. And I also think just because after he died and it was like when you're in a position that is vulnerable and painful, it put me, I think, in a different place. And so it was just, it was hard. What I learned is that um, one thing he told me, which was always helpful, is like, you have to make a decision about whether you want to play in Madison Square Garden or whether you want to play in your backyard. Like if you play music in your backyard, no one boos you. They like <laughs> everyone's for you. But, like if you make the decision to play in Madison Square Garden, you're going to get people booing you. And so I just realized in terms of scale of change, I wanted to play at Madison Square Garden because I wanted to impact lives and change, mm-hmm. which means I kind of had to get used to the idea that people would boo me and and that was going to happen, but as long as I think my compass was set, that's what became very clear is like, do I think I've always acted with integrity? Do I think I've done the right things? That that is how I have to measure myself. Danielle and I talk a lot about, you know, how do you balance being a manager and or a leader with sometimes you don't make the popular decision, but you see it in a way that like, this is why it's the right thing to do. You know, I often like hear myself telling people on my team, you don't have to like try to have them be your friend. Like yeah. it's okay if they don't like like you right in this moment as long as it's the right decision. And you know, it, as long as you're operating obviously with like a strong moral code. <laughs> Did you find that as you built your own team at Promise that that was uh, something you had to navigate? I think it was. I think the challenge is like as someone who's now in their 40s, is when I was in my 20s, like the models we had were men who like yelled at people and the version of leadership was like a power individual and it was strong and assertive. And I think I certainly made a lot of management mistakes. It's only as I started to get older, like I even understood there was a different model for leadership, right? That there is a model for leadership that it is like, you don't have to prove you have power, right? The way to do that is not to be mean. The way, you know, like it is to call people up. And so I definitely find myself having to manage it. I also think it's like really hard to be a woman in that the way that you're measured is really hard as a CEO because 
we feel like we have to prove ourselves like that we're doing a really good job. But we also realize like, I watch the number of women who I think have been attacked for their leadership styles. And it's like, Elon Musk does it. It's like, cool, right? Like Steve Jobs does it. It's cool, right? Like it's their passion and their commitment. And I don't think even in 2020, we've created a model for what female leadership looks like that's strong. At Promise, I think I've learned, I think I've made mistakes and I've done good things. But I think the thing I'm trying to figure out more and more is what's the leadership style that works for me and for our company? Because it is one that I think is very feminine and is rooted in being a woman of color. And so what does that look like? How does that operate? And how do I not care about the standards? So I think that's been really important. But I I think I'm still learning. And I think I'm very clannish. So I sometimes have felt like this is our team. But I think the reality is uh, someone told me once, I was talking about, oh, I feel bad about this management decision. And a friend of mine, the CEO said, okay, you have to decide if you want to be the head of HR or you want to be the CEO. Because like, if you want to be the head of HR, you get to have all those feelings. You get to make those decisions. But like, if you're the CEO, you make decisions on the interest of the company. And so I was like, oh, I want to be the CEO. But you have to check yourself all the time. Right, right. Because it's like, and society rewards you for like, as a woman, yeah. for being the head of HR, right? And so yeah. it's like, when you do act as a CEO, it seems as, you know, uh, it seems as very different. So I just constantly remind myself that there's not enough of us in leadership. And part of it is because we haven't been trained to be the CEO. We've been trained and the world expects us to be the head of HR. We're going to dig into promise, but I, I would be remiss for myself, if I didn't ask you, how does somebody become Prince's manager? <laughs> oh my God. I don't even know, right? That's the real, I don't know how any of my jobs I feel like I've done. <laughs> um, you become it because I had a friend, Van Jones, who's now in CNN. He, Prince was a, a donor to Greenfrog. And while I was having, I was pregnant and I had some time on my hands because I was like, I don't want to be working, working, but I want to figure out to do a project. So Van was like, Van connected Prince and I, and he was like, if anyone can get you your master's back, it's Phaedra. And um, I met with Prince and I didn't think he liked me. And then he was like, you remind me of the mother of a woman that he'd spent a lot of time with. And I I didn't know enough about his history. So I was like, okay, he called me like an older woman. I don't know what's (laughs) going on. And so we met and then uh, we worked on getting his master's back with an incredible attorney named Rhonda Trotter. Then we got his master's back. And then I was like, okay, now I'm going back to work and I've had my baby. And he just was like, you shall never leave my side, basically. Um, And so it was an incredible experience. I learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot about also the ability to say, I don't know something. Because I think a lot of the achievements all through his brilliance and his mastery, what we were able to do because I didn't assume stuff. Like I just was like, how how do masters work? Okay, great. I was like, well, if he owns half of them, then he can stop it from being sold everywhere. So let's just <laughs> stop it from being sold. You know, no like, need it's to like, overcomplicate right, it. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, okay, got it. We can, if we have half, if we have 50% plus than a little bit of the other power, we have a controlling interest. So people thought we were crazy and he was crazy because we took his music off platforms. Like there's all the stuff that we were doing. And it was just because like he had control. So he could act in that control and the short-term loss was worth the long-term gain. So it was incredible. It was really through Van. And even I left uh, months before his passing and went to work and he continued to be a strong ally and good friend. Um, and so I always just have incredible appreciation and respect for him. What is promise? Uh, promise is really like the manifestation of my hopes and dreams. And by that, it's trying to figure out how do you scale impact? And the tool is technology, but it's really a company devoted to understanding 
how can you use government for good and how can technology scale some of those solutions? So our first project was to work on uh, criminal justice, specifically how did you scale bail reform? It was interesting because we did a lot of good work and continue to do work, but part of what we realized is the incentives have to be aligned and selling to people whose incentives are to incarcerate people doesn't work. You have to sell people who have an incentive to get people out. And so we started with a criminal justice product and began to think about how the incentives were aligned. And we actually ended up um, on payments. We ended up working, we continue to work in criminal justice, but also now specifically in payments. And the idea is because the incentives are aligned. Government wants you to pay your money. You don't want to go get in trouble and face the consequences. So we do everything from child support to criminal justice. So when you say, like, I mean, truly, like, I'm going to take your advice and ask all, all the please, please, no dumb questions. Please. There's none. So if you're, like, if you're hiring somebody, somebody's interviewing or you're recruiting somebody to work at Promise, what, how do you describe what it is like they actually will be doing? So first we say Promise is a cost-effective, more humane alternative to incarceration. So how does that work? So we have two different products, one which is a financial services product, the other a criminal justice product. So the first, if you're working on the criminal justice product, you're working basically as a personal assistant to people who are either under some form of community supervision. So it might be, I get charged with a crime, I can't afford bail, I get out early, and we send you reminders about your court dates, we connect you to resources. Our whole incentive is to keep someone out of the system. So we provide all of that in an app, and it's all the support you can think about, like how do you get to an appointment? And then we give information back to the government. So for example, we say, hey, we notice in the Bay Area, people who have morning appointments and live more than an hour away are always late for court. So why don't we change if you live more than an hour away to going in the afternoon? Because otherwise we're setting people up for failure. We notice that the court requires people to do education appointments, but it's a total fail and ridiculous. We notice the longer you're on probation, the more likely you are to fail. So let's shorten the time people are on probation. So the way to think about it is you're spending time providing support to someone who's been con- uh, charged with a crime, not necessarily convicted. And then we're providing information back to the government about how to better support that person. So before you even tell us about the financial services aspect, I want to pause here because whether it's been on this show and we've talked to, to other leaders or aspiring entrepreneurs who have come to us for advice, when it's something in the social impact space, usually the first question is, do I do for-profit or nonprofit? So yes. I really want to hear like how you made that decision. I think the other thing I want to hear is with a criminal justice reform. That is a yeah. big meaty category. Entire elections yeah. have been based off of debates around it. <laughs> like that, that's a big thing. I think one of the hardest things for an entrepreneur who wants to take on something so big is like how to focus. You describe promises like your hopes and dreams. I know mm-hmm. that you've got more up your sleeve. How did you decide where to focus? So let's start with the nonprofit versus uh, for-profit. And then I'd love to understand the focus. Yeah. The nonprofit versus for-profit was what did I think the greatest tool was to affect change? And I felt like if we did a nonprofit, we could build effective programs, like small effective programs, but we wouldn't scale. And I wanted to understand how to attract the most capital, how to attract the best talent. And so for me, because I just spent time in tech, I knew I could do that best by being a for-profit. It was important that we got investors who fundamentally understood our vision. So for example, as a company, when there was some clients we didn't want to work with, we said, no, we're not going to work with you. And I needed investors that understood those were the decisions we were going to make. But I thought I hadn't seen any type of scale 
outside of technology that had effectively done it for so cost effective. So for me, it was the best strategy. The thing I learned in music is also that like people are more likely to come to a concert that's enjoyable and talk about social change. Like it's much easier to say Prince wants to meet with you than it is to say the committee to talk about, you know, the committee for social justice wants to talk to you. (laughs) So the basic thing is like when you make an experience more enjoyable, people are attracted to it. When you make it easier for people to use, they are more likely to use it. And so for me, a for-profit was that because if I did a nonprofit, I knew that one, I would spend a lot of time fundraising, much more time than I would in a for-profit. And I knew that I might not attract the same assets and resources that for me were uh, a balance to the skills I had. And so there was just no question. And I knew that the team I would hire, their values were strong enough that I didn't need something to stop us from being doing bad, right? That the team, I think, in those values would be strong. And so that's been really important. So I'd run a nonprofit before. And part of what was hard is it felt we had to do so much and make decisions sometimes about where resources were that I was like, at least I can do it in an environment that's not as resource constrained. And I didn't think there was more freedom in a nonprofit. I thought I actually felt more freedom in the for-profit world. We also were fighting forces. Like if you look at the technology that's been done on behalf of police, which is horrific, like innovation is happening in these spaces only on the thing we're experiencing is like on behalf of police. And so we wanted to make sure there was innovation happening on behalf of folks in the system, on behalf of poor people and women and people of color. And so we knew what that looked like and what we had to counter when you looked at how, you know, technology was being used. And so, so for us, a for-profit made the most sense. Talk to me then how you decided like where to put your focus. Yeah. And I will say that for-profit part of it was finding the right investors. Cause like we couldn't have taken certain investors for our focus as small as it sounds, it was mostly like where I grew up and the people that we knew and who we wanted to impact. And at the time when we were starting, it wasn't quite as exciting as it is in this moment. So like when you, we were talking about the fact that, that two thirds of people in jails have not been convicted of the crime they were arrested for is unacceptable. And the fact that we are criminalizing poverty is just unacceptable. And so the thing we wanted to do is because I thought government was the best tool for change. And if you could change government, it had more repercussions than whatever I could do as an individual. And so if I was like, how do I impact that, that strategy? Then I was like, what's the place that's most broken that we could have the most impact? And so for us, that was criminal justice, both because it had touched my personal life and my family. And I was clear how broken the system was. And I was clear in the difference between having money and not having money. And so I just thought if there's any way to balance the system, like I felt like I had an obligation to do it because I'd been privileged. Like my, my life had shifted and for most of my family, it didn't shift. So I just was like, where do the, where do our folks need the most amount of resources? Talk to us about the financial services aspect of what you're doing. Cause this is so innovative. Uh, yeah. The thing, the financial services was mostly, I didn't realize people went to jail for parking tickets. What I was interested in is like, why people were getting in trouble for these things. Like why weren't there payment plans and other things? So we went, we were in Oakland and we looked at the city of Oakland's payment plan for parking tickets. And you had to have 50% of the money up front. You had to owe, I think $500. You had to come into the office. You had to have copies of your taxes. You had to have like the license of every person in your house. And there was an interest rate. And so a fee. And so I was like, this is a system that is not made for someone to succeed. It's actually made to criminalize someone. And so I was like, if that's parking tickets, and then we looked at things like child support. And on child support, we saw that what happens is if the non-custodial parent 
who the person is paying child support, if the custodial parent gets public benefits, the non-custodial parent has to pay that back. So let's say you get food stamps. Yeah. So the, let's say your mom, you get food stamps. I'm dad. I'm paying child support, but I'm also paying the government back for the food stamps you received. Oh, wow. Okay. And most people are in relationship with people in similar economic situation. And so the idea that not only am I paying you, but I'm going to try to pay back the public benefits you received. It's like the system was creating poverty for folks that had criminal consequences. So for example, if you get behind in your child support, you lose your driver's license. If you lose your driver's license, that's who's most likely to not show up for court as someone who has a suspended driver's license because you need to go to work, you need to drive your kids around. So the way we got into financial services is really the recognition that the consequences were so significant and the systems were meant to penalize people that we had to build systems that were more updated. So for example, why do you have to prove you're poor? If you want to put yourself on a payment plan, why, why, why prove you're poor? Like that doesn't... Yeah. And so... What we did is we started in Oakland with parking tickets and the payment rate went up much higher because one, we said, if you want to be on a payment plan, just sign up, go online. And if you want to pay, it should be cash app, Venmo, it should be whatever way you can pay. And last, if you want to change a payment date, you don't have to call me for two hours to talk to someone. Like the incentives should be that we want you to succeed. And so that's how we ended up in financial services, specifically with the government is because we wanted to do an intervention to stop the consequences. What do you think our listeners would be most surprised by learning about the criminal justice system? How many people are incarcerated who haven't been convicted of a crime? And maybe the the thing that's most shocking is like what happens. So let's say, let's say someone we know gets arrested. They sit in jail and they don't have the money to get out. They're most likely to take a plea deal. They take a plea deal because they just want to get out. Even if whether they're guilty or not, they take a plea deal just to get out because they can't afford a lawyer. And most things we know don't go to trial, they get plead out. Then the problem is they're under community supervision which means if they get in trouble, then the consequences are they go straight to prison usually. So, and could trouble could be you miss an appointment with your probation officer. It could be you don't pay a bill on time. It could be you're at the wrong place at the wrong time. And so the thing is, and the thing that was so um, shocking to me is you give up due process. So like we were meeting with someone and they called it a cost savings measure, which is if you're on probation, you don't have a right to a trial, they can send you away for an offense. So I think the thing that was surprising to me, and I think will be surprising to most people, is the system is designed to incarcerate people. It's not designed to have us be safer as a country. It's designed to incarcerate and it's incentivized, right? It's the way your budgets work is you get paid per person per day. So the incentives are off. I want to talk about what it was like to raise money for Promise. And we talk a lot about fundraising on the show, especially venture capital fundraising, Most of us are aware around the statistics for women raising in in Silicon Valley and and in the tech industry and, you know, in particular women of color being able to raise successful rounds and more than one round, like the stats, those numbers become exceptions rather than the norm. What was your experience like raising money for this? It was relatively easy. How? Well, one, I think I ran revenue, which is anytime you've run finances, I think people think you then know how to make money. So I think they invest in you in a very different way. Um, so I ran revenue at a company that was fast growing and I ran it from beginning till I left. So I had grown the business, right? So I think having that credibility, I think was important. I raised from people I knew mostly, like I mo- knew most of the folks, which was I think important. I raised from people who shared my values. So um, we raised very quickly. The most helpful thing was I also didn't know anything. 
So I'd only been in one tech company. I didn't know anything. I didn't go to like Stanford. I didn't have like any credentials. So the people, they raised 20 million in their seed. So like, I thought that's what you do. You raise 20 million in your seed. I understood the valuation they'd raised at. And so when I went and started fundraising, if like uh, someone said to me, you should raise your company at a $15 million valuation or like a $6 million valuation. And I thought they were being offensive because the only model I had seen was the model I'd been in. So I knew what that valuation was. So I think part of it is I didn't have enough experience to know any differently. And by then I was already a mom. Like I wasn't reading, you know, tech articles. I wasn't talking to other people. So I went into the environment as though that's how people were supposed to respond to us. And I think sometimes people respond the way that you expect them to. It's unusual. I think a lot of our investors, they were pretty diverse. So it was like everyone from first round to Jay-Z to the K-Pors. Wait, I'm sorry. What was the second name that you said? Jay-Z. No, it's one of our investors. Rock Nation is one of our investors. I walked into it. I felt like it was a mission. And so that also made it much easier. And I found investors who understood that we were trying to understand could capital not be extractive. I think, and we made mistakes. At first, we're like, oh, we're going to work with some of these people. And I'm like, oh, no, those people are the devil. So it just worked. I think we, we understood the market and we understood how to make money. And so I think my co-founder is a criminal defense lawyer. So I think understanding the market and then understanding how to make money. And we could hire a team, which people knew. Because I'd been in a fast-growing startup that had thousands of folks, people knew I could then attract talent. I was very lucky and skilled that we were able to attract capital. Because you know we raised 12 as a seed. We did four. And then 90 days later, we raised another seven something. First of all, just congratulations. That's Thanks. incredible. You throw these numbers out, but like you're talking about millions of dollars. It's an amazing thing to help change the statistics, both in what you're doing and also for the, the, the venture world. So just congratulations. Yeah. It's a lonely world being a woman of color, being a black woman. <laughs> it's, it's a lonely world. I actually, it was going to be my next question, which is in a normal circumstance, in a normal climate, what you are doing and trying to solve for every day is absolutely exhausting and emotionally draining. To be a CEO is lonely, exhausting, and draining. To be a Black woman, I can only empathize in the world that we are living in right now is, you know, I we're, we're in a really ugly moment right now and the news stories that we're seeing and just seeing such anger and violence happening in, in this country. And my question to you is, how are you taking care of yourself? How do you take care of yourself so that you are the leader that you are for your team and for yourself? Um, one, I really appreciate it. The one thing I'll say about this moment is I feel like what's good is what's becoming public has been what our experience is. And so the nice thing is like when we would talk about the criminal justice system being corrupt, people thought we were crazy or very left. Like we'd be like, it's broken. It's not designed. It's designed to not work. That no longer feels like I have to convince people that it doesn't work for black people and brown people and others. And so that part actually, though heartbreaking, it feels like the reality in which we're experiencing is public now, right? It's like, you don't have to have that debate anymore. People get it's broken. So that part doesn't feel demoralizing. And also the amazing people that are rising up and doing incredible work is, is just makes my heart happy. For taking care of myself, one is I was doing really poorly, which is not exercising anymore, which I think is really important. And um, it's just hard. Like, I feel like you should start everything, but like, I'm sure you're depressed as a human. So like, how do we deal with the fact? So like and with my own team, I'm just like, if you can't make it today, you just take a day off. Like this stuff is hard. Like 
we just have to realize like we are living through a hard time and whatever you need to do, you need to take care of yourself. And I think that's important. We, and we just like make care packages for our crew where we're sending them fun stuff and, and to their families. Cause we're all of a sudden work is in your home. I think for myself, when I started doing coaching, which has been very helpful. Like you are getting a coach or you, I got a coach. Okay. Yeah. And the thing he said to me that is really helpful, which I don't think women do is he said, you have to think about yourself as a formula one car. And you have to take care of yourself in the way a Formula One car does because other people are depending on you. And I think I think of my, I treat myself like I'm a Toyota (laughs) and right. It's like, I'm going to get the kids to everything. I'm going to like, and then I was like, oh, you're right. Like I'm integral and I'm high performance and I'm not treating myself like I'm high performance. And so now what I've done is to think about it as an algorithm, which is what are the steps? Like if I were thinking about a successful Phaedra, what would that look like? So for me, it's like sleep, it's exercise, it's time alone because now I'm surrounded by humans, but it's hard. It has to be a practice because I don't think, I don't think it comes naturally. And I think being home is so much harder. Yeah. Are you ready for our lightning round? It's our last. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Morning. Best work from home productivity tip. Uh, Mornings when everyone is asleep. So because we have a lot of kids, the best time for me is 6, 7 a.m. because it's quiet and I can focus. Okay, wait, I have another productivity tip, which is to not stress out when you have complete chaos. Because like with my kids, they used to be like, oh yeah, my kids are here. Move them out of the way. Or like someone's asking me a question. Now I'm just like, roll with it. Doesn't yeah. stress me out. No, I'm like, you have to. That's right. They're coming in. Um, <laughs> that's actually increasing my productivity, not worrying about controlling everyone else. How has your nighttime routine evolved over the last few months? Oh, I took the TV out of my bedroom and I just go to sleep. Wait, you know what's funny? I put the TV in my bedroom. No. <laughs> like no. I moved it. <laughs> no, take it away because it keeps you up and it gets your mind thinking. And- no, it makes me like, I watch, you know, I fall asleep to funny shows. It's great. I mean, I know that's really bad things to do, No, but I literally just, yeah. like moved like a TV. You did? Okay. Yeah. No, the opposite. I was like, there's only like 25 franchises of like before the 90 days, after the 90 days, during the 90 days. You'd be surprised. Like, they can keep right, going. Right. I was like, now there's a show watching the people watch yes. the show. <laughs> well, I was going to say, what is the last show you binge watched? But I think I know the answer. No, I did. What is the last show? I'm really into P Valley right now, which is on stars. Okay. What is the worst professional mistake you've made? not listening to myself. Like I think when there are times I knew something wasn't right for me and I stayed too long. Fun fact about Prince. Uh, he was the most pro woman human I've ever met with. He, he didn't want to work with men. Huh. Last time you negotiated for yourself. Uh, this morning with my daughter to leave me alone. <laughs> Phaedra, this was amazing. Thank you so much. And congratulations on everything. Thank you for having me. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 